Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Today's sermon is by Chris Cravens. It was preached in 2011 at the Interchurch Holiness Convention in Dayton, Ohio. He titled this sermon, Worship. I know you will enjoy this wonderful message. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on and on. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on and on. Well, if you're happy in the Lord, say amen. It's great to be at an IH convention 2011. It's great to see your smiling faces in the service tonight. You could have hung out at Arby's, but you chose to be in the convention hall, and that's good news. Not that Arby's is so bad sometimes either, but uh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord, this convention hall tonight. Would you stand with me, please? 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 29 records the words of King David as he placed the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, that holy tent, which the King David, King David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said this command, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. In Psalm 95, beginning with verse 1, here again, King David exhorts his listeners to worship the living God when he says, O oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Shake hands with somebody you haven't spoken to tonight and say, I'm glad you're in convention and you may be seated. The Hebrew word for worship appears in 166 verses throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Greek word for worship appears in some 40 verses. So over 200 times a reference to worship is made throughout the Holy Scriptures. Worship is the humble reverence and passionate adoration and expressed gratitude of a servant before his benevolent master, a man before his God. A.W. Tozer said it this way, God saves men to make them worshipers. I'm convinced tonight that worship is indeed the lost art among us, which is the great evidence of a fallen, broken world 
the preservation uh, or perversion, as it were, is a result of lost worship, as so adequately described for us in Romans chapter 1, specifically in verse 29, which reads, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Worship can so quickly become the forgotten commandment, a neglected need, a too far removed priority. The the Bible illustrates that worship is indeed the cardiovascular system of the soul. Worship is the expression of our relation in which God the Father reveals himself and his love in Christ and by his Holy Spirit administers grace to which we respond in faith, thanksgiving, and obedience. Worship is what springs forth from a living relationship between you and God. It is that connection, that communion, that dialogue, conversation between you and the Almighty. Have you considered that your worship is indeed a conversation with God? So how are you communicating? How are we talking? How are we expressing? And are we paying attention? And are we giving? Worship indeed is that aroma in the room that whets the appetite for nourishment. It is in the act of worship that we partner with God in such wonderful communion and communication. Corporate worship is the group gathering of private worshipers who have come in response to the invitation of God to meet with God, realizing that the almighty God awaits us. Have you kept God waiting lately? Is it respectful to ignore the times and schedule of worship to God? Who is God that we should keep him waiting? You see, worship is not merely a receiving or a getting blessed, so to speak, but it's a giving. God gives to me, and I in turn give back to him, and as a result have given to each other. Worship is a blessed experience, a glorious journey. For God's people in the Old Testament to worship in Jerusalem involved the whole experience of the journey. The ancient Israelites were very familiar with the journey of worship. The holy temple located in that holy city, Jerusalem, was the central location of their worship. Three times a year, all adult males were expected to appear in Jerusalem in order to keep the primary feast, which were all established as a means of worship in response to God's salvation for them. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths. For those pilgrims that lived a great distance from Jerusalem, they made the pilgrimage annually once a year to the holy city, Jerusalem. These pilgrimages were indeed holy journeys. The scriptures tell us how these journeys were often made by large companies. They traveled from their homes through difficult terrain to their ultimate worship destination, all because they felt their obligation and had a deep passion to worship the Almighty God. No wonder when they came into view of the great city Jerusalem that they began to, as they began to enter the gates of that city, it was cause it was cause for great rejoicing and celebration. And though their steps might have been heavy in weariness, their hearts were lightened with expectation. They would enter the gate singing and shouting with gladness. Their journey would take them all the way to the temple where the priest would offer their ministry services, which would move from the public forum and gathering all the way eventually into that annual trip the priest would make to the Holy of Holies. 
The Jewish worshipers would never have realized their journey of worship as incremental, but rather the whole journey was a holy experience of travel, fellowship, sacrifice, and then the return. They would come into Jerusalem singing, and they most certainly would leave that holy city singing to return to their villages and homes, transformed once again by their journey of worship. And so it must be for us tonight as well as we assemble with all the eager saints in the company of the great body of Christ wherever that may be. Dr. Isaac Watts said it well when he said, Lord, how delightful tis to see a whole assembly worship thee. At once they sing, at once they pray, they hear from heaven and they learn the way. Worship extends as far back in human existence as in the Garden of Eden when the Creator Himself, Genesis tells us, that He walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Oh, to have fellowship with God in the pristine environment of that beautiful garden. You see, worship is the essence of all creation. Angels were created by Him to worship Him. The Bible tells us that they surround the throne of the Almighty, chanting, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Even nature itself was created for the purpose to worship him. Colossians chapter 1 tells us all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. And so even the babbling brook and the silence of the stones and the clapping of the trees and the songs of the birds and the rumbling of the rivers and the whisper of the wind and the twinkle of the stars, the brilliance of the sun and the blooming of every flower, even to the midnight croakings of the frog outside your window. All were created to worship the Almighty. And so it is that man was also made to worship, you and me. And since we are born fallen in sin and alienated from God, broken and dysfunctional in our relationship with him, we therefore must be redeemed so that we might fulfill our grand and glorious purpose, and that is to worship the Lord our God in the beauty of holiness. Worship is serious business. The first account of murder happened between two brothers, Cain and Abel. It involved a conflict regarding their varied methods and motives of worship to God. The one Abel had a repentant heart and desired to obey the commandments of God and found favor with God and obtained the blessing. The other brother Cain was rebellious and insincere and sought to worship God on his own terms and his offering was ignored by God. And so, you know the story, in a jealous rage, Cain murdered his brother. We could travel to the foot of Mount Moriah tonight as a band of weary travelers stopped their procession. And Abraham says unto his servants, recorded in Genesis 22:5, Abide here and I and the lad will go yonder and worship. Isaiah, Isaac built altars of worship and Jacob built altars of worship. Noah, the first thing he does after the great flood that covered the entire earth was when he set foot outside of that ark, he builds an altar and he worships his God. Genesis chapter 8 tells us in verse 20, And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. 
We could continue our journey tonight if we were to take the time and jog through biblical history, through the various eras even of human existence until this very moment in time tonight. And the very and every account would indeed testify to the fact that we are created by God, our creator, to worship him. This is core to holiness. Will we experience the reality of true worship tonight? Will we worship the Lord our God in the beauty of holiness? Tonight I want us to consider this matter for just a moment. I want us to consider the attitude of worship. G. Campbell Morgan said it like this. The attitude of worship is the attitude of a subject bent before the king. It is the attitude of a child yielding, yielding all of its love unto its father. It's the attitude of a sheep that follows the leading of its shepherd. It's the attitude of saying yes to everything that God says. You see, tonight a proper attitude of worship will result in a realization of who God is. Bishop Moore said, we've minimized God in our day, we have deitized man, and we have minimized sin. And so no wonder we live in a culture that is in awe of the Almighty. It is time tonight that the church, for the church to remember who God is. It will impact our worship. When we do, we'll, qu we'll quit coming late and sitting back and sleeping through sermons and analyzing our neighbor and grumbling over the offering and mumbling through our songs. A, a proper attitude of worship results in a realization of who God is. I know this is somewhat suggestive suggests an impossibility to realize who God is as far as being able to fully comprehend his eternal majesty, his inexhaustive intelligence or spectacular glory and it will most certainly require the timeless and never ending ages of our eternal residence in the unveiled glory of heaven itself to fully comprehend his, his awesome greatness. Yet God has revealed himself to us in part through his majesty majestic creation, his giving of the law, the preaching of the prophets, the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ, his visible body on earth, the church, his marvelous miracles, and the printed pages of the holy scriptures. And it's such holy writings that tell us indeed who he is. The psalmist declared in the 104th Psalm these words, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who covers thyself with light as with a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers of flaming fire, who laid the foundation of the earth that it should not be removed forever. The psalmist David testifies that it is the joy of the saint that he who is their God is a great God. The grandeur of any prince is the pride and pleasure of all his good subjects to recognize his wealth, his authority, and his dignity. But just just, uh, just recently, we've, we've been reading in the news, I'm sure you've been following it, the high cost of, of such events, grand events, in the house or homes of princesses and kings. When Princess Charles and Mary Diana some years ago it was an over, uh, over a $30 million wedding event. 
And we've, been, we've heard it in the news. It's everywhere. William is soon to marry Kate in just a little while. And the economists figure that the wedding will cost upward of 50 to $60 million. But let me remind us tonight, however, the majesty of earthly kings and princesses compared with the Almighty is but as the light of a glowworm and compared to the brilliance of that of the sun. Our God goes forth in his strength and when God stands up, everybody else sits down. We need a renewal tonight of realizing who God is. That, that Such a renewal that will result in a proper attitude of worship. Oh, that we could catch tonight a fresh realization of who he is that we worship. The accounts within the Holy Scriptures have filled the gallery of time with the portraits of his almighty greatness. In Genesis, he is indeed the mighty creator and covenant maker. In Exodus, he is the deliverer, the water, the manna, the glory, the fire by night, and the cloud by day. In Leviticus, he is the holy one. In Numbers, he is the order of all things. In Joshua, he is faithful, the faithful transition and furious in battle. In Judges, he is the faithful king. In Ruth, he is the loving provider. In Samuel, he is the voice in the night and the light in the temple. In Kings, he is the double portion. In Chronicles, he's the Ark of Covenant, that holy presence. In Nehemiah, he's the source of prophetic vision and a prophet's passion, the builder of that desolate city comprised of broken walls and burned gates. In Esther, he is the sovereign protector of his people. In Job, he is the trusted leader, the final word, the great healer. In Psalm, he is the poet, the provider, the river, the present help in trouble, the good shepherd, the new song, the bulwark never failing. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is wisdom and comfort. In Song of Solomon, he is unconditional faithfulness and love. In Isaiah, he's the promised one, the holy one, the bread for the hungry who has no money, the water for the thirsty whose wells have not satisfied, the hope for the perishing. He is wonderful and counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He's the governor of his own government, the king of his own kingdom. In Jeremiah, he is faithful amidst our tears, the fire that burns in the heart of the preacher. In Hosea, he is forgiveness. In all the minor prophets, he is the unction and the message, the means and the marvel, the God of a second chance. In God, the gospels, he is the word who became flesh, the king of the kingdom, the promised Messiah, the way, the truth, and the life, the only begotten, the lamb of glory, the resurrection the miracle worker, the resurrection and the life, the one named Jesus who came from heaven to earth, our souls to save. In Acts, he is the rushing wind. He is that holy fire. He is that new baptism which sanctifies the believer, made them witnesses and birthed a New Testament church. The scripture says they literally turned their world upside down because of him. In all of the epistles, he is the faithful instructor, the fresh anointing. He is holiness, the sanctifier, the, the, the rock, the keeper, our strength and weakness, our great high priest. And in Revelation, he is the one who knows us, the one who yet stands at the door and not and indeed is our soon returning King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We should worship him. 
No wonder Robert Grant penned the words, Oh, worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing His power and His love. Our shield and defender, the Ancient of Days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. So tell of His might and sing of His grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space, who chariots of wrath, a deep thunder clouds ride, and dark is the path, His path on the wings of the storm. The earth with its store, no wonder untold. Almighty, thy power hath found it of old, hath established it fast by a changeless decree, and round it hath cast like a mantle the sea. So his bountiful care, what tongue can recite? It breathes in the air and it shines in the light. It streams from the hills and descends to the plain and sweetly distills in the dew and the rain. So frail children of dust and feeble as frail, in him do we trust, nor find him to fail. His mercies, how tender, how firm to the end. Our Savior, our Redeemer, our soon coming friend. A proper attitude of worship involves a realization of who God is. He is the Almighty. He is the great I Am. He is incomprehensible yet obtainable. Hallelujah! A proper attitude of worship is the realization of when and where God meets us. We worship when we realize that it is God who has initiated every meeting. Easter, we celebrated our Lord's marvelous resurrection just, just this past weekend. Friday had been a day of weeping. Saturday had been a day of waiting. And Sunday became a day of rejoicing. But during the silence of that Sabbath, someone staggered in the darkness of the morning into the temple, and by the time they lit a few candles, they knew something had happened in that temple. In the darkness, they discovered the veil that had hung, separating all of us who were common from that of the holiest of holies. Lying torn and crumpled on the floor as if dropped from heaven by two mighty hands, it, there, there it lay. And so it was that God shouted in the silence of that Saturday Sabbath, that his office door had been kicked open and the voice of God sang out, Come in! Come in! Come in! <laughs> God has initiated contact with a fallen race. <laughs> he has come near. He has bended low. In the Garden of Eden, God met Adam in the reverberating fallout of absolute failure and sin. God met Job in the ash pile of absolute brokenness and physical pain. God met Moses on the backside of the desert of frustration, set a bush on fire, made, a part, made, made part soil holy ground, and recommissioned his forgotten shepherd to lead his people out. God made Abraham on Mount Moriah the altar of full obedience and unwavering faith and provided him the ram for the sacrifice. God met Jacob at the end of himself in broken confession and blessed him there. God met Elijah on the mountaintop of courageous prayer and in the cave of total discouragement. God met Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace of utter dependence. God met Daniel in the lion's den of unwavering faithfulness. God met Isaiah in the transforming vision in which the prophet recognized the needs of others and the needs of his own. God met P Peter on the waves of human limitation. God met Saul of Tarsus on the Dam Damascus road of human disillusionment. God met the demoniac in the graveyard of satanic destruction. God meets us when we're willing to meet him. He will not ignore tonight those who seek him. He will not abandon those who have placed their trust 
trust in him tonight. And we will worship when we realize that God meets us in such a sacred place. And when he does, we are transformed anew by the power of his grace. A proper attitude of worship results in the remembrance of what God has done. When we worship our Lord, it is a great discipline to remember what he has done. In order to understand what it is that God has done, we need only remember our own story of salvation, the pit from which we have been dug. Do you remember the day you fell to your knees confessing out every sin you could remember and begging God for mercy, forgiveness, and grace and just another chance? And sure enough, he heard your prayer and saved you right then and there. Do you remember when you came to God asking for that deeper work, that sanctifying power? You confessed to him this nature within you that seemed to govern you and rob you of victory over sin's power in your life, unholy anger and an unbridled tongue or jealousy or envy, love of the world. And you confessed your hunger for the baptism of the Holy Spirit that cleanses from sin and empowers for service. And sure enough, sure enough, just as you were saying yes to Jesus, Jesus, the fire fell. The apostle summed it all up. Paul summed it all up in that beautiful passage in Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our lifestyle, our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, that even when we were dead in sins, hath made us alive together with Christ, by grace ye have been saved, and has raised us up, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. I tell you friend tonight remembering who God is and when and where God meets man and remembering what God has done will indeed spark our worship. We don't need clowns and we don't need extra verses and we don't need funny preachers and we don't need a lot of things if we have a hunger and a desire in our hearts to worship the Almighty. We'll come with batteries already charged and a spirit eager to worship the Almighty. The demoniac remembered, the Samaritan woman remembered, the Philippine jailer remembered, Bartimaeus remembered, Mary Magdalene remembered, Peter remembered, and they worshiped. I could take you to Finley. You could go with me to Finley on about any given service. And you could somehow, if you could see the crowd over here on my left, there's a lot of worshipers in Finley. And but let me just say, we're, all, we're working on this ourselves. We don't have it all down pat, but we're students. We're in school about this matter of worship. But I could show you back about three or four pews back on the left-hand side, right in the middle section. I could introduce you to a little lady whose name is Almira. 
Almira, I remember the first time I met Almira was at her husband's funeral, which she sat on the front row, and she never wept a tear. She sat there, a bitter, angry, hard woman. Her life had been hard and difficult. There had been abuse and violence and, and poverty and all of these things, and Almira had had a rough life, and she sat there that day. We were busing her grandchildren in our Sunday school on our church bus. I walked through the procession of the funeral home there, and I shook her hand, and I could tell that her, she was a hard woman. Her life had been difficult. We decided not long after that to take a, a Thanksgiving meal to one of the bus families, and so we had a discussion and prayed about it and decided that we would take it to the Oswald families, the, the ladies of the church, the Oswald family. So the ladies of the church put together this meal and, and uh, we put it, packed it into the back of my car. And I mean, it filled up the trunk of the car. And one of the bus captains, uh, Brother Jim and I went to deliver the meal late, just the night or so before Thanksgiving. We pulled up to, Al, to Almira's house. Uh, we were told that the kids were there, thought the family was there, but the, at Grandma Almira's house. But lo and behold, mom and dad had left and only the grandkids and Almira were there by God's providence. We walked up to the door and knocked on the door and told Almira came to the door and said, what do you want? And said, well, he said, we've got a trunk full of food. We've got a whole Thanksgiving meal out here in the trunk of our car, and the church wants to give it to you. All you got to do is warm it up, kind of serve it up. It's good to go. She just stood there with her mouth hanging open. She couldn't believe it. She goes, well, I, I bring it in, I guess. And so we started packing in out of the trunk of that car, and we loaded that little kitchen table down with food, and Almira stood there and couldn't believe the kindness that was being shown her. She began to spill out all the woes and the griefs of her life. She talked about sons that were dying with, uh, with cancer and with liver disease and drinking and smoking themselves to death and the, 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 the difficulty she'd had. And she just couldn't believe it and how she was, she was needing something. If God could somehow help her, that, that would just do her wonderful wonders. And I said, Almire, you got a Bible somewhere? And she goes, I think I do. And she pulled it out. And, and we began to read down through the Roman road about how she could come to know Jesus as her personal savior and she said that's that's what I want to do so we knelt down in that vinyl little vinyl floor there in her kitchen and right beside her table loaded down with all that food Almira gave her heart to Jesus Christ that night at 69 years of age she raised up off that little chair on her knees still and with those little gnarly fists of hers she beat her chest and she said oh the weight is gone the weight is gone the weight is gone it's been several years now Almira has been faithful to the house of God. If I could take it to her, we'll sing some songs. She now pulls in her oxygen tank and her little oxygen around her nose. She can't hear hardly much. She's nearly completely blind, but she comes to the house of God regularly and she shakes those little fists while we sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What's going on? She's remembering. She's remembering. She's remembering. No wonder Halder Lil and us pinned the words once I was bound by sin's galling fetters. Chained like a slave, I struggled in vain, but I received a glorious freedom when Jesus broke my fetters in twain. Freedom from all the carnal affections, freedom from envy, hatred, and strife, freedom from vain and worldly ambition, freedom from all that saddened my life, freedom from pride and all sinful follies, freedom from love and glitter of gold, freedom from evil 
evil temper and anger. Glorious freedom. It's rapture untold. Glorious freedom. Glorious freedom. Wonderful freedom. No more in chains of sin I repine. Hallelujah tonight. A proper attitude of worship involves a reality of who God blesses. I'm reminded of the New Testament account recorded in Luke's gospel in which Jesus tells us in chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I find that kind of humorous. He prayed with himself. God, I thank you that I, of course, Jesus is telling this. This is what kind of makes that even a little more humorous to me. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who, has, who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, one came to Jesus simply to came to church or to worship to simply simply analyze the crowd and judge his neighbor in order to exalt himself. The other came to church, or one came to church as a spectator. The other came as a confessor. The truth is, look around and try to find a sinner in the crowd. Better yet, walk out into the streets of this great city of Dayton and find what you would consider the worst out there. And then tell yourself with tears, there I go, but for the grace of God. We'll worship tonight when we recognize who it is that God blesses he blesses the humble, not the haughty. He blesses the hungry, not the hesitant. He blesses the obedient, not the obstinate. He blesses the agonizer, not the arrogant. He blesses the generous, not the greedy. He blesses those who desired to be saved, not the willful sinner. He blesses the one who desires a holy heart and not one who's content with the carnal. Oh, God, give us a hunger tonight for the reality of authentic worship of God, both privately and publicly. And in order to experience the reality of worship, we must have tonight a proper attitude in worship. Worship that realizes who God is and when and where God meets man and what God has done and who God has blessed or is that blesses. Our gathering for worship also involves not only the attitude of worship, but it involves the activity of worship. Robert Weber wrote a book entitled, Worship is a Verb, and so it is. Worship is a discipline, not something only based tonight on mere emotion. Thank God for those moments when we feel good and we feel like raising our hands and singing with energy and responding to the sermon. But I'm talking tonight about an activity of worship that strikes at the heart of deep commitment, discipline, order, intelligence, along with emotion. That holy energy that is unmistakably obvious in the room. That worship, that activity of worship that involves a full obedience. 
We could go back to the story of Abraham tonight. And the Bible says that Abraham rose early in the morning to offer his promised son unto God on Mount Moriah. Obedience tonight is inseparable from authentic worship. G. Campbell Morgan said, The abandonment and surrender of the whole of man to God is worship. I worship, he said, in the presence of God as I recognize that in him I find everything that my life demands. That full obedience tonight will result in worship. Worship, the activity of worship involves a, a faithful observance. Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 23 through 25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he whose promise is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as we see the day approaching. Richard Alien in 1755 says, We meet in the church to renew our covenant with God. Worship involves a full obedience. It involves a faithful observance. A story is told of the old man who would stumble to his church down the walk, down the street, at the sound of the church bell to attend his service. A neighbor sat on the porch, would always, would often watch the old gentleman stagger his way down to the church when the old church bell rang. He knew that he couldn't see. He knew the old man could hardly hear. And he was quite frustrated with the efforts of this old man that struck conviction to his own heart while he sat propped up on his porch when the church bell rang. Finally, he called out to the old man one day and he said, Sir, why do you go down to that old church every time the bell rings? You, can't, you can hardly hear unless somebody shouts. You're so blind, you can't see anything going on. It's not even safe for you to be out walking down the street. Why is it that you go to that church every time the bell rings? To which the old timer responded without a moment of hesitation. He said, sir, I want the devil to know whose side I'm on. Worship, worship tonight involves a faithful observance. Little Almira walked in just, the, uh, just, just a service or two ago, and I said, Almira, I'm so glad you come. It means so much to all of us. I know you can hardly breathe, and I know you can't hear, and I know you can't see, and I, I, I know that you probably get very little out of the service. And this was her response. Oh, but pastor, I just wanted to let everybody know whose side I'm on. A faithful observance, a full obedience. The activity of worship involves a visible response. I'm aware tonight that we can certainly tilt into unhealthy and heretical extremes in this matter of a visible response and worship. I too have been in services when it seems as if the patients have taken over the asylum. Order has been removed and theatric stunts have become heroic and the preaching of the word has suddenly grew less important. I am not talking about that, which becomes man-focused or uncontrolled. We've all seen, seen abuses in some of these areas and settings. But tonight, I am willing to risk an occasional extreme tonight, rather than our worship to become dead and dry and non-responsive and cold and perfectly calculated. I just as soon, one too many, take to the aisles and shout, than none at all. 
And we have better preserved this matter and activity of worship among us that there's still a spirit. Something happens in the body of Christ. Every once in a while it does take over the service. Every once in a while it will move the saints. We've seen it around here. We've seen it, I hope, in our local churches when the suddenly the Holy Spirit comes and moves on the people. But may our worship, our activity of worship, truly be that which gives praise to the Almighty. Some time ago, I was, I was needing a fill-in song leader at Finley several years ago. Carl Peters is sitting right down here in the middle, just right off this, right down here by the baby stroller. That's not their baby stroller. Somebody else's. Brother Peters, I don't know, 94, 95 years old now. One of the greatest saints I've ever known. I asked Brother Peters if he'd lead my singing 10 or 12 years ago. Now he's in his 80s at that time. I didn't know who to get to lead the singing. We were kind of in a slump. And he said, Brother Cravens, I've just determined long ago when I got saved and sanctified that if I was ever asked to do something for the Lord, I'd never say no. He said, I'll, I'll do my best. I don't know if Brother Peters remembers this or not, but for some, a long time, he was our song leader. He would get up and lead the singing. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. One Sunday night, we had a man from the community, a pastor from the community. His church didn't have Sunday night church, and so he slipped in to one of our services on a Sunday night, <clears throat> and he sat through the service. I wondered how he would take it. Brother Peters led the singing. The service progressed. The Holy Spirit met with us. It was a wonderful evening. The next morning, I attended the local ministerial, 20 to 30 pastors in the area, some of them coming from rather large churches and all taking their turns talking about their praise bands. In fact, one said to the other boy yesterday, said, we made some old people mad. We rocked the house yesterday. They were talking. Suddenly, Wayne spoke up, the minister that had been in our church the night before. I just sat there feeling a little out of place. I didn't have, we didn't have praise bands, and, we didn't, and I don't have a problem with orchestra, and I don't have a problem if you have more than one song leader, but, uh, but you'll understand what I'm saying. Wayne spoke up and said, hey, I'll tell you what, guys, you ought to have been to Craven's church. You ought to go over to Craven's church. Let me tell you what his praise band consists of. He said his praise band consists of a piano, an organ, and an old man. One old man, he said. Just one. And I was embarrassed that Wayne had the attention of the room. He said that old man got to singing and leading us in singing, and every once in a while he'd stop and he'd throw his head back and he'd say, Hallelujah! And he said, every time that old man said that, I felt it from my head to my toes. Cravens can do it with one man. Well, I want to tell you what tonight. I want to tell you what tonight. I want to tell you what the, I'll tell you the secret is. The secret is this matter it comes from a man who's serious about his worship. His heart's filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a fire within him. There's something deep in his belly. And he yells it out every now and then. And you feel it from your head to your toes. 
That's what I'm talking about tonight. That's what I'm talking about. Throughout the Bible, throughout all of the Bible, the people of God sang songs like they meant it, played their instruments and clapped their hands and shouted with loud voices and prayed with energy. And I want to tell us parents tonight, tonight the best contribution that we can make in making sure our kids don't drop into hell from off of our laps is to get involved in church and love it. Worship God like you mean it. If we have a proper attitude of worship and we are active in our worship, I believe it will result in a wonderful atmosphere of worship. The holiness people are a people who are hungry for the manifestation of God's presence in our gatherings. That's why I'm here. Because we have a hunger for moves of God. We hunger. We long. We're pursuers of holy piety. We believe in prayer meetings and Sunday school classes and picking up little urchin kids off street corners and giving them a chance that the world will never give them. We believe tonight in singing like we mean it. We believe in the old hymns still that carry a message that transforms a life from the depths of sinful woe and tragedy to new life in Christ. We believe that tonight. I'm among the waiting assemblies at the IHC because I too have the same longings. I don't want us to get to the point where a hand never goes up, a shout is never heard, a tear is never run down anyone's face, a chuckle is never heard. We're just silent with death. Oh God, spare us from death. I'm not interested in the crazy and the wild and the circus clowns, but I tell you what I am interested in. Deep piety that expresses itself in humble worship to the Almighty, whether it's silence that comes upon us because of the power of the Holy Spirit, or weeping, or shouting, or singing, or testifying, or praying. We are hungry for the move of God in our midst. And we long to worship. We long to worship. We have a proper attitude and activity of worship. It results in a wonderful atmosphere of worship. God's presence in our gatherings. He said, I will inhabit the praise of my people. Where there is praise, there is God. There have been times when I, when I couldn't seem to get my prayers through. There have been times when they, my words seemed to bounce off the ceiling. There's been times when the darkness of the sanctuary in which I walked and prayed was as dark and heavy as a great burden around my neck. But I want to tell you something. Along the way, the Lord is teaching me that if I'll just start praising Him, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Let now, I am constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my yielded soul to thee and it isn't long until suddenly suddenly something starts happening deep down on the inside the atmosphere of worship where God's presence is felt we've always been pursuers of individual piety and persuaded of the Bible's accuracy and passionate in our praise to God for some of us I'm concerned that we're not tuned into the atmosphere of our churches it's my greatest concern in our own church 
We can have the latest of gadgets and we can, ha- we can stream online and we can archive great sermons and use PowerPoints or have heavy hymnals stacked ceiling high in our sanctuaries and I'm not opposed to any of these measures. But the reality is we must have the presence of God in our services and we can be just as musty and dead with an old hymnal cracked in our hand as a PowerPoint on a screen. We can be just as dead and lifeless We must have the presence of God. And that will only happen as we come into God's house with a proper attitude and activity of worship. For in the atmosphere of worship, blessings are indeed bestowed. Oh, the thrill of unadulterated worship to God. Nothing between my Lord and me to come into the public place of the gathered saints to join in the prayers and sing in the songs to hear the word of God and embrace our brothers and sisters in encouraging fellowship. While we certainly don't offer our worship to God requiring anything in return, yet how often it is that he makes his presence apparent unto us. E. Stanley Jones said, It is the act of rising to a personal experiential consciousness of the real presence of God which floods the soul with joy and bathes the whole inward spirit with refreshing streams of life. Blessings are bestowed. Blessings are bestowed in the house of God, in the company of the saints. Already tonight, we're going to leave here better than we came because we've been in the place of worship. Faith is built in the atmosphere of worship. I think of how Noah must have felt when after years of faithful obedience, rejection of his community, the many sermons he preached without a response, they laughed him to scorn. The days of rain, storms, isolation. I mean, how would you feel if it dawned on you one morning that the only people left on earth were you and God and the devil? Shut up in that ark drifting who knows where. But on that first day off the ark, God responds to Noah's worship with that beautiful rainbow. That beautiful rainbow which still to this very day assures us of the promises of God. You can't read the Psalms tonight without the feel of agony, often in the heart of the, of the writer. Oh, but it isn't long until his woes turn into worship and many a psalm ends with the psalmist putting his faith in the promises of God. I remember times of worship when God would come. Sitting in my seat, I have felt my faith strengthened. God is still real, I'm reminded. He still answers prayer. He still has a church. His kingdom is still coming. He still cares. He still knows the way of the righteous. He can still save a poor lost sinner who truly believes. Yet yet he still can entirely sanctify a willing believer. The Holy Spirit still anoints his messengers. Yes, I think... I can make it. Yes, I think I can by grace divine. Faith is built in the atmosphere of genuine worship. In the atmosphere of worship, blessings are bestowed and faith is built and conviction is brought. When God's presence is in the room, while the saints are being blessed and faith is being built, conviction, conviction is brought. The hearts of men and women are made hungry in the atmosphere of worship. As a young boy sitting out in the congregation, some of those services when the saints really got to worshiping, they were really singing. I mean, they were worshiping, praising God, the preacher preaching, and the people excited. There was such a longing in my heart. 
As a wayward boy, often a longing in my heart, oh, I'd like to, I want to join. I want to join in that worship. And my heart would be smitten with conviction because I knew that I wasn't right with him and I knew I couldn't join in that worship. And oh, how my heart would long. I tell you, it spoiled me. It spoiled me for the church. I wanted to be a part. I saw some saints that were real. I heard some preachers that had a burden. I was around some people that loved God with all their hearts. And it made me hungry. It made me hungry. I know that many are concerned today why there doesn't seem to be a hunger after God. Or why there are no seekers at public altars in their churches. There may be many reasons for this concern, but... But one might be that our worship has become dead and empty and lifeless, stale and musty. I don't think so in the IHC in this grand convention hall. We have wonderful worship service. This is no indictment about the convention. But I wonder when we go back to our local parishes and our local congregations... Do we pick out our songs during Sunday school and we practice at the last minute and there's no thought much throughout the week of a sermon for Sunday morning or whatever and our little worship services apart and isolated and by themselves really offer nothing to a world that longs for hope. That's my concern. That's my concern. There may be many reasons why there are no seekers, but it could be that our worship is dead, empty, lifeless, stale, and offers them nothing else than what they already have, death and gloom. I'm asking the Lord to help us, to help me. A few Sunday mornings ago, oh my, you know, when you get over 40, you start doing funny things. You use the red alarm button on your keychain. Not to call for help, but to locate your vehicle. Do I have a witness? You know you're 40 when. You're asked your age, and you no longer tell it, but you give a date. You hear, he's, that was a slight amen over here. You know you're 40. And uh, you know you're 40 over 40 when you say a few days ago and it was a few years. And your kids remind you, Dad, you're lying. And you feel convicted and you get saved all over again and your four-year-old prays you through. It was some time ago. I got a phone call Sunday morning from one of the bus captains. He said, Pastor Cravens, uh, Mark just told me he's coming in. I thought I'd call you and have you get ready. I said, okay, I'm glad you called. Now, Mark, we knew Mark, or we, have, we knew of Mark. Mark was off of Clinton Street in Finley. It was, a hev- it was a bad street to live on, heavy drug traffic and all kinds of things. It's the center of our inner city, such as it is in Finley. Mark was a drug dealer. He was a man in his late 30s. He was of Hispanic in nature, muscular, brawny, tattooed, massive head of hair. He drove an old van, had carpet on the dash, drove it through town. Just about everybody knew who Mark was. He was normally up to no good. 
And I told the bus captain, thanks for telling me. I'll, I'll watch for it. In just a little while, I looking out the windows of my study, I saw that blue van pull in to our parking lot. It wasn't even paved then. It was just gravel. And I watched him ease across the gravel and park in the far corner of that parking lot. And he just sat there, and I watched. And I didn't think he was coming in. He sat there, and he lit up, and he had a smoke. And he sat there, and he sat there. And finally, I said, I better go out there, or he's not coming in. So I whispered a prayer in my office, and I went out. I crossed the gravel, not for sure if he'd shoot me or what he'd do. And I went up to his window. He had it rolled down just a little bit. He didn't offer to roll it down anymore. And I said, hi there. My name's Chris. Stuck my hand through the window. He reached up, kind of grabbed it, wouldn't look me in the eye. I said, what's your name? He said, Mark. Oh, Mark. Nice to meet you. I got a brother, an ugly brother named Mark. He's pitifully ugly. You're a lot better looking than him. My mother cried when he was born. He said, no, I didn't tell him that. Just wanted to throw that in. We shook hands. He said, I'm thinking about getting, coming in your church. I said, uh, okay, Mark, I'd love to have you. It'd make my day. He said, um, my wife grew up Jehovah Witness. I grew up Catholic. He said, we're a little confused. I said, yeah, okay. He said, I got a question for you, Chris. I said, what's that? He said, why should I come to your church? You know what, tonight, that's a fair question. That's a fair, I mean, you ever stop and wonder? You ever go in on Sunday morning and just stop in the vestibule and can't find the restrooms and ask, why should I come to this church? Why should they? I said, Mark, I, I don't know. I said, except uh, we, we got problems like any other church. We're made up of human beings. I'm, I'm human. I, pinch me, I'm going to say, ouch. Yeah. We're full of people kind of messed up. And uh, we got people in there that's been exactly where you are, Mark. And I can't say that if you come to into this church, everything will be perfect and everything will be just great and you'll be impressed by everything. I, I can't say that, Mark, but, but I tell you what, I'll make a bet with you. I'm not supposed to do that, I know. It was a mistake, but I said, I'll make a bet with you, Mark. Stuck my hand back through that window. And I said, I'll make a bet with you. You come to church this morning, and if somewhere in the process of this morning, you don't sense the presence of God Almighty, I'll never ask you back. I'll never ask you to darken another church door if you, if you don't somewhere in the process of that morning. He turned and he looked at me for the first time and he grabbed my hand, that big tattoo bulged with a muscle and he said, you got a bet, Chris? I said, okay, and I got my arm back. I went into that church and I hid it from my office for the sake. I had some praying I had to do. I got it and I shut the door and I said, oh God, I don't know why I haven't realized this as fully as I realized it this morning. I don't know why it hasn't dawned on me. But Lord, we need you this morning. 
We need you this morning. If we've ever needed you, Lord, Mark's out there in the parking lot. And he's on his way to hell. And well, Lord, we need you this morning. Would, would, would you just, Lord, Lord, just. I got up, didn't have much time. Got out there and Mark came in right out the strike of 1030. He came in. Praise the Lord for great saints that like to sit in the back of the church so that the sinners and the new people can all have the front. I'm not laughing. I'm about fed up with that as I can get. But anyway, that's another sermon. Mark comes down. He sits in the second row right down here in front of me. We have church that morning. I'm just praying so hard the whole time. I don't even know what's going on around me. I'm just saying, oh, God Almighty, oh, God Almighty, oh, God Almighty, you got to come in this service. You've got to come in this service. You've got to come in this service. You've got to come. I don't know when it happened for him. I don't know how it happened. But I just know when I come down to the end of the service and I offered a simple invitation like we often do on Sunday mornings, oh, Mark stepped out of that second pew. And he walked down and he passed the altar rail right up onto the platform and knelt at the communion table. And he bowed his shaggy head between the offering plates and the candles and the little wooden cross. And he prayed. He walked out of that service. He never came back. I wish I could tell you that he was the chairman of the board, but he's not. He never even came back. But it was just a few months ago that I was at the convenience store and I was in line behind this guy, this convenience store, right down close to Clinton Street, and I saw this bushy-haired Hispanic man with the tattoos holding his fifth of whiskey getting ready to buy it at the counter. And I was in there just to pay for some gas, and I'm standing behind him, and hang this guy, and he turns around and says, You're Chris. And I said, You're Mark. Yeah. He says, Me. I hit his, put this behind his back. Yeah. He said, you know, I'm sorry I never came back to your church. I, I'm sorry. He said, I really should because you know what? He said, I tell everybody, I, every time we talk about religion, he said, you know what I tell people around this town? I tell them that I'm not doing right. I know I'm not doing right, but I went to a church. I went to a church that I felt something in that church that I had never felt anywhere else in my entire life. He said, Chris, you got it at that church. You got it. Well, I, I don't know when the story will ever be ripped, but this, this I know. This I know. Somewhere along the way, we've got to offer them something the world doesn't have. And it's not really more bright lights that we need. It's just more of Him. It's more of His presence. It's a congregation of worshiping saints that's willing to humble themselves in His presence. Isaac Watts says, Oh, how delightful tis to see a whole assembly worship thee. Conviction is brought. A few Sundays ago, I began praying about kids in our church, little kids. I thought these little kids aren't seeking God at altars of prayer. Lord, help us, help us. A few Sundays ago, I don't know how it happened. I don't know. But all of a sudden, this little, little boy steps out and comes down and kneels at an altar and gives his heart to Jesus Christ. I tell you what, tonight, we need to be worshipers. A.W. Tozer said, God saves men to make them worshipers. God makes us holy so that we might be worshipers, so that we can worship him in spirit and in truth, in the beauty of holiness. Are you ready to worship tonight? Are you ready to do it? I'd like for you to stand with me tonight, if you would.
I grew up in a layman's home. We, we grew up sitting out there on the bench. Dad was a World War II veteran, U.S. Navy man, worked 41 years as a millwright, first class, Colgate Palmolive Company. Mama just lived at home and fixed us meals and set us off to school and welcomed us home. And just, we grew up just sitting on the church bench. But we grew up with some parents that loved to worship. They'd drag us around to camp meetings and revivals and old dad would stand up and get to testifying and the tears run down his old scarred up rough face. Life wasn't perfect, but he knew this, that he had been changed from the man that he was. Mother would testify and she'd get blessed and she'd sing tenor. I tell my kids that my mama, you could sing tenor and they laugh at me, you're my, my grandma. Women don't sing tenor. Oh, grandma, mom, mom did. Mom sang tenor and she'd get blessed. She'd praise the Lord and she'd raise that hand up. Grew up spoiled for that. Not the superficial, but something that was backed up with a relationship with Jesus Christ where you didn't have to pump and pull and prod and poke and ever the temperature had to be just right and the hymnal had to be in the same seat where you left it and nobody got your parking spot or it ruined your morning. We need to get beyond all of that. And worship. And when we do, God accomplishes His will. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA.